You are listening to Global Chat Radio, streaming from Tuart Hill here in Western Australia, and this is the second of interviews with Ben Riddle by Peter Jeffries in our series of Meet the Poet. Could you kindly move into reading Cavalier for us? Of course, of course. I wake up hungover on a Wednesday, roll out of bed into two cups of coffee, taken white with no sugar but four tabs of Panadol. I inhale an anxiety cure as an afterthought, and 20 minutes later I'm at my psychiatrist trying to explain to him the inexplicable, trying to explain to him why I'm sad. He starts with my father. He always does. Have you seen him lately? Does the tick-tock of the clock still remind you of the rhythm that you beat into the sounds of your soul and I tell him no? Not except for a nightmare where I saw him in Stockholm, with a boy that shared my name and none of my disposition, the son he always wanted, perhaps. He wants to know more, but it was dusk, I tell him, and all I can say is I lost them in the darkness. How about your anxiety? Have you been feeling anxious lately? And I cannot help but quip whether a snake still scrapes its scales on its skin and my sack. He tells me that he's just trying to help. I never know what he wants me to say, that yes, there are still bad days where the night time from my nightmare bleeds over the bedroom door and I cannot go outside. Or, yes, I tried to take that time off work, but one of the girls messaged me and messaged me until I had an attack instead of feeling any better. Or, yes, I still write about it. Like, I can stop writing about my one constant companion, that abusive lover that will neither let me sleep nor be. But instead, for some reason, I decide to tell him about the good. And I don't know why, but maybe it's so one of us can pretend like we're making a difference. So I tell him about Sam. And then he asked me if I was feeling any better. And I tell him that I lied to Sam because I didn't know how to have that conversation. I tell him about Asha, who drove to my house in the middle of the night and stayed with me until I could stop crying for a little while. Would you describe yourself as feeling depressed? My psychiatrist asked. And I smile at him like a teacher asks a silly question by a student clever enough to work out the answer for himself. I tell him there is a sun inside my head that glows bright and golden like any other, but it is hidden now, shrouded behind an eclipse so old that I have begun to forget this feeling of sunlight dancing across my face. So yes, I tell him, yes, I am depressed, and yes, I am sad, and yes, one day I will feel better. But in the meantime, yes, there's poetry. Thank you. Mm, well, why the title Cavalier <laughs> and uh, the um, gamesmanship of uh, yourself? And uh, the psychologist. Um, the piece is called Cavalier because um, yeah. at the time I was reading a lot of Cavalier poets, um, yeah. and it was very much a homage to the concept of being able to sit and be literary, but also be fighting. And I liked the balance of both. And that, the the title isn't inherently important to the rest of the poem, but for me, it has and always will be a reminder that. People can't always see what you're fighting and how yeah. you're fighting it. But if you get up and you know, then trust that instincts. Never let it be minimized. Let it take up space. And for me, my, again, my, <laughs> quite obviously, my artistic expression is in poetry. But it is just as valid to go and fight your battles over a cup of, key, a cup of tea with a friend or yeah. um, through painting or anything else, through sport. 
if that is um, where your outlet is. Mm. Um, again, I advocate for everyone to pursue therapy. I think it's just a healthy thing to do, um, yeah. irrespective of your particular nuances of your mental health. I think it's useful having an objective observer and listener and support mechanic. Um, but yeah, for this poem, it was very much about fighting. And I have definitely gone to psychiatrists sometimes and felt like we're not entirely on the same page. And being on the same page is important. Communication is important. And it is entirely fair that I've probably been to psychiatrists and been difficult. <laughs> no. I've probably been a difficult patient at times. But for me, I think the nuance of conversation is important. And what I wanted to play with in this poem um, is the idea of establishment figures and them going through the motions of, again, not to take the mickey out of Are You OK Day too much, yeah. um, but the simplicity of some, some questions underlies how complex some of those answers can be. And for me, that's what the poem's about. No, and that's uh, the answer that... Uh... Uh, pleases me in that uh, you say that therapy is useful for some things, even if <laughs> it's it, uh, a bit like a ping pong game. Mm. If 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 you know the classical theories of, mm. of, of, of therapy, and then you came up with the lovely penultimate. Uh, but in the meantime, yes, there is poetry. So, is poetry something that stands um, almost alone? Um, it's like a benchmark, or it's a. In other words, why that last line? But in the meantime, yes, there is poetry. I write every day of yeah. my life. I write to prompts a bunch of the time. At the moment, I'm responding a lot to Quill and Crow's prompts if you are yeah. on Twitter or Instagram, but I will generally write. There will always be a yeah. line stuck in my head. And something that's really important to me is I write 10 rubbish poems for anything that I would yeah. even remotely consider useful or sharing with other people. Because through right. one, I'll invent a metaphor that will be useful. In another, I'll find like a rhyme or an assonance that I really, really like. Um, in a third, I'll find a story. For me, there's a big and important difference in my artistic practice for writing for yes. myself and writing for other people. Right. And sometimes I, it's hard to navigate that during my writing process. It will often be afterwards when I sit down and look yes. at something and be like, oh, that is about trauma or I'm talking about a relationship and it would be improper for me to talk more about that. So this week, um, I think it was in the New York Times, but the cat person drama has reared, reared its ugly head again um, where someone published a short story um, about um, their partner on a bad date that their partner had gone on, but fluffed it using essentially by stalking someone's um, social media yeah. and putting an, too much, well, an unnecessary amount of um, description of a real person into a text. Yeah. Um, so I'm, and I've definitely fallen short of this um, myself. I've definitely written and published poems probably a bit too close to mm. um, events um, but yeah, at this stage of my artistic practice, it's really important to make sure that anyone that I'm referring to maintains a level of anonymity. Yeah. Um, although I do confess that there's, uh, there's certain, um, people at like bars and stuff that I try and sneak in as yeah. Easter eggs. There's definitely a poem that I'm doing a bit at the moment that references one of the bartenders at the moon cafe that I'm yeah. a bit friendly with. Um, we'll just, we'll, yeah, we'll have a few laughs or whatever. So I try and leave happy Easter eggs through a bunch of my writing, but I, yeah. For me, I never want my poetry to do harm. 
I want yeah. the worst thing that could possibly happen be for me to do a poem and just no one like it at all. And I'll yeah. vaguely get a sympathy clap or two at the end of it. Um, <laughs> which happens, which happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. But yeah, just for, for this one, it's very much... Um, right. Yeah. Now, swinging across from there, I mm-hmm. uh, uh, delighted in the uh, hard... Uh, bitten, <laughs> but almost a proper conclusion to the next poem. And I'd like you to read it for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry for us. Uh, before I sing, uh, before I perform this one, yeah. I would like to apologise. It has some singing in it. Um, I'm not a singer, um, yeah. but I will do my best. <laughs> Is it too late now to say sorry? Because I'm... Missing more than just... We're lying in bed and I can't stop shaking. Yeah. I'm trying because I can see that I'm scaring you, but I can't. You whisper to me that it's okay, that it will be okay, that you're there and always will be. The tremble in your voice sends another tremor through my body. I can already see that you're leaving. You stay another two weeks. The whole while part of me wanting to push you away. The whole while needing you the whole time. A few days after I finish my episode, I find a, night, a note on the table saying you thought it was the easiest way. In an odd way, I couldn't help but be glad that I didn't make this final thing hard. Is it too late now to say sorry? It's late, and I know I sound like a broken record, but I leave another message on your voicemail anyway, as if this one will change your mind. They've switched my medication again, and it's been six weeks since my last episode. Long enough that I've begun to pretend that it was all a bad dream. I tell your voice that I'm better. Try and plead that if it wasn't me, just that part of me, then I've vanquished it, slain that dragon. I ask you if we can be home again. Because I'm missing more than just your body. (laughs) Three months after you left, I met someone else. Someone funny and fair where you had always inspired me to be better than I was. We went out for drinks and a movie the week after. And then you called me in the middle of the night to come and pick you up, to take you somewhere safe. You had just broken up with your new boyfriend. And for the first time in a long time, I was the one saving you. Is it too late now to say I'm sorry? (laughs) I took you back to your place, walked you to your front door. You kissed me goodnight and I asked you if it meant anything. You smiled at me like you were all the good in the world and told me I was a fool. You told me I didn't have to apologise for who I was, for what I didn't have any control over. I don't think I've apologised for it since. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as I say, my comment in the question uh, that follows, you wrote powerfully of the push and pull complex of wanting to have your comforter and at the same time wish them uh, absent until uh, in turn you have a um, a gentler relationship uh, in the poem uh, you find somebody and it is nowhere near as intense but it's been very pleasant and delightful and reassuring for you Uh, and that it's not so uh, complicated and uh, you then managed to be able to help your friend through her own quandaries and uh, she called you a fool. Now was she correct in inferring that your earlier relationship with her and in fact nearly all relationships shadow play and uh, why is it you can finally uh, disregard this as a vital part of uh, 
uh, need to be? I think we construct identity through a lot of... We tell stories every day. Yeah. Our identity is drawing them all together. When I dress for this interview, I am at the moment wearing right. a wearing a sweater, yeah. collared shirt. I have nice brown shoes. Yeah. Um, so I've tried to dress well for it um, and pretend like I know anything about poetry for the purpose of this interview. <laughs> By looking at me, if we pass each other on the yeah. street, you would be able to construct a narrative about me based yeah. on these conscious decisions that I have. Right. Appearance. A- appearance. More than that, we construct identity through a bunch of other labels. A bunch of them will be interrelationship. So you might be a husband or a wife. You might be someone's cousin, mother, father, brother, son. Something that I think we also do is we we construct identity through what we identify with, right? Mm. So if you're a big football fan, I feel like I'm dunking on footy fans a lot today, but bear with me. But if you go and watch West Coast or Fremantle every every week, um, then that's... You are conducting an action yeah. to derive identity. I think mental health is something that we allow to sink and sink its claws into us and make itself a part of our identity yeah. in quite a parasitical kind of way. It is entirely valid to recognize that your mental health is part of your character and part of how you will conduct yourself. Yeah. I don't think it is ever a useful, useful frame to put at the forefront of your right. identity. And again, to come back to where I was when I was writing this project, Initially, it was becoming, it was very much one of like the forefront things in my mind. Yeah. There was drag myself to training, perform as an athlete, go home and be depressed. Yeah. So it was one of my default states. And again, like the, for me, healing in regards to mental health is often making something manageable or making it yeah. as small, uh, putting my mental health in a position where it has the least amount of impact on myself yeah. that it can. So there's always going to be bad days. There's always going to be days where my brain takes some minus negative stimulus and takes it far too seriously. But that should just be a day. That should never be who I am or how I identify yeah. myself. I never want to look at myself and be like, you are just an anxious mess. Yeah. Because that does me a disservice and it does a disservice to the people that I surround myself with. Because yeah. at that point where it becomes consuming, yeah. you become a drain on the people around you. And that's kind of what I'm trying to address in the text. Yeah. The piece is not autobiographical in the sense that it is one story. Um, yeah. it's, for me, it's informed by a whole bunch of different experiences I've had with dating over the years. Yeah. Kind of like how Seinfeld is like derived from like a whole bunch of different stories and anecdotes yeah. or whatever and thrown together. Yeah. So it definitely leans into being autofictional in that I conflate my identity as an author with a main character and narrator and mislead the audience, but coming from a place of sincerity to communicate message. Hmm. No, that's good. And uh, <laughs> that's why I like the fact that you don't have to apologize mm. <laughs> uh, because it allows you, as you say, uh, to get on with the uh, 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 straightforward juxtaposition. Uh, well, we shifted then from there to another poem that I want uh, will want you to read, and then um, Lakshmi will join us. Um, It's uh, about the poem um, uh, Howling. A friend of mine, Robbie, who is in fact very similar in some respects to you, is uh, one of Victoria's most admired young poets, and of course he's had impeccable mentors, uh, Robert Adamson, and Pio. 
he had a, that a, a, apart from the landscape that stretches outside, I guess body, that actually our own internal body uh, generates its own landscapes. And he had similar anorexic and uh, bulimic obsessions. And in fact, at one stage he'd starved himself so successfully he obscured it from his parents that actually sat at the same table with him, whatever, 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 that he collapsed in front of them and was obviously had to be taken to the hospital. And he said that uh, at that stage, and I've seemed to think that the mental business that you've been talking about uh, did lead, in his case, to self-abuse and uh, attempts at suicide. So the poem, Howling Them, uh, operates similarly, uh, talking of our own civilised cultural presentation of self, but it has animalistic, beast-like, basic nature that denies any of the effects of our acculturation by society. So your sense of uh, climactic verse, so would you kindly read uh, Howling? Yeah. When I close my eyes, all I hear is howling. Howling like the winds that throw themselves at the cliffs I jump when I want to remember what fear is, or the winds that scream in the night to wake me from the dreams I have about growing. Growing up, or into a man, or maybe something else, becoming the person I want to be, maybe, or the person I was told that I wanted to be, I can't quite remember anymore. When I close my eyes, I see other eyes. My eyes, sometimes they are. My eyes are yellow when my blue-green eyes have closed, jaundiced and starved, saddened by who I've been, neglected by who I would become. They are hungry eyes, grown into wanting more than they are given, trained by restraint to wait until we are alone before they howl. When I close my eyes, I hear my howling. I hear the bestial animalistic parts of me, those mongrel thoughts raised on toxic masculinity and beaten like the child of a man who fears no consequence, raised to be a victim or a victimizer, two paths born out of hate and destined to end there. When I close my eyes, I hear the man I could have become, and when I open my eyes, I silence them. That's beautiful. So, your sense then, the question is a climactic impulse, very strong, and I actually refer to the metaphor of thy eyes. When I close my eyes, I hear the man that I could have become. And when I open my eyes, I silence them. So where did that wonderful reflexive metaphor of the eye come from? And how many visions or changing eye color have you experienced? Or is it just purely a literary uh, convention? For this one, it was largely a literary convention. I wanted to play with the idea of lycanthropy. Um, and for me, the poem is very much about masculinity and learned masculinity. Because yeah. I think in our contemporary day and age, there is all of these underlying ideas about what it is to be a man. And there yeah. is no universal text or focal point that actually explains it. Yeah. So... A hundred years ago, you might be able to point at the Bible or Christian, Judeo-Christian teachings and be like, this is where we are consciously deriving masculinity from. At the moment, there is permeating and consistent ideas about manhood yeah. and nowhere to actually refer from. Mm. And where 
yeah, what I want us to play with um, through this text is the idea of manhood sometimes being thought of as something primal. Yeah. A lot of the language we use when we're watching sport is like these boys going out to go to war and yeah. rah, rah, rah. And almost like we're unleashing something within us. Well, even the name of the teams, Tigers, uh, Panthers, <laughs> Cougars. <laughs> entirely, entirely. For me, this piece is about looking at that and consciously deciding to be something else. And as much as the poem positions the persona to be learned and yeah. above all of it, I think what, often when I write, um, I try and position myself to be complicit within yes. masculinity because I am. Um, as much as I like my, the, for the poems that I actually put yeah. out into the world, there is a conscious level of resolution. Masculinity is something that requires critical engagement and yes. conscious thought yeah. and looking at the places where it comes up. And for friends that I've grown up with, there will be jokes that like lean into quite toxic masculinity that we've been saying for so long that they've lost inherent meaning. We don't think about the words, we just, we laugh because it's something we've laughed at since we were 13 or 14 or whatever. But be, trying to be more conscious of where I put those words and what spaces I put them into and who I might affect without really thinking about it is something that I try and interrogate a lot with my writing. Because again, like there's, I wish when I was 12, someone had given me a yeah. book and was like, this is masculinity because then I would have yeah. something to either <laughs> buy into or consciously reject. Yeah. But over the years, there, there's been a plethora of things yeah. where someone will be like, have you thought about the connotations of yeah. that? And it will be something that I'm so indoctrinated with or I've been so yeah. trained to, to respond with that I'll be like, you know what, I've never, I've never yeah. put thought into that. Yeah. And yeah, I, I spent, I've spent most of my adult life working in fitness. I spent most of my life, I have spent almost my entire life in men's locker rooms. And there is a lot of back and forth in those yeah. kinds of settings where there are no checks and balances and it is quite difficult to enter a enter a boys locker room and try and be any kind of check or balance yeah. that is actually productive and over the years particularly in the last decade where i've been working in fitness i've had the privilege of yeah. getting to talk one-on-one -on -one with a with a lot of athletes um and in one-on-one -on -one settings removed from a team dynamic or yeah. peer pressure whatever yeah. Just asking a couple of the boys that I've taught, like, oh, why is that funny? Like, where does that actually come yeah. from? And just by positing questions, having men internally reflect on what they're saying. And again, like, I am constantly reconstructing masculinity or my own sense of identity. Yeah. I am by no means a mm. model for what a person should be. But through my poetry, I always really want to ask questions and advocate for critical engagement. So... Well, when yeah where i'd ever have kids or for all the kids that read my texts that they can then more effectively critically engage with masculinity the way felt at the end of it all